Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, coming to you from the historic district in town and inside the Museum of the American Revolution. Brand new, just opened up in April, an amazing place that depicts the dynamic story of all the players and the stories you probably never heard about but need to know of the beginning, the middle, the end, and the aftermath of the American Revolution. It's easy to say, but easier to prove that Philadelphia is a city rich in history because it's a walking city for me. I like to just walk and look around and and you just have to walk 20 feet and you're standing somewhere that something happened and something very cool happened. And, you know, when you think about a city that was founded in, in what, 1682 uh, by William Penn, uh, imagine where we are right now. We're, we're, you know, we are hundreds of years later and so much of that history is still here in the fifth largest city in the United States. Joining me now, uh, the historian of historical Philadelphia, Sandy Lloyd, how are you? Good morning, I'm fine. So let's talk about that history. I mean, you heard my introduction. I mean, everywhere I walk, I can just stand there and go, oh, I didn't know. And there it is. Where we are right now at the Museum of the American Revolution, we are spitting distance from where? 
Independence Hall. Spinning distance from Independence Hall, which is where the Second Continental Congress met and debated whether we should declare our independence from Great Britain. And by the way, as I toured the museum, I learned something. Pennsylvania was a holdout. We sure were. And that's something that most people don't realize, that not everybody was enthusiastic about declaring independence because we considered ourselves British Americans. And so there was a group of people. You were hedging your bets. I sure am hedging my bets. <laughs> no, but, but what's interesting is you had that one delegate, Dickinson, yes. right, who kept on saying, it's just a piece of paper, guys. You're going to get your butts kicked. Don't do it. And then as each different colony showed up, saying, no, we're in, we're in, we're in. He excused himself, didn't he? He just said, I'm out of here because we're going to lose anyway. So, and, and Pennsylvania went for it. He and Robert Morris, after a debate on July 1st, chose to not attend the meetings on July 2nd. And Robert Morris... Sort of like what's going on in Congress right now. It, <laughs> it was a, absolutely, it was a log jam. Yeah. And because the two of them were not at the meeting, Pennsylvania was able to rally support and vote for independence. And in many ways, that was the decisive vote. We, yeah, they, they sent Dickinson a message going, while you were out. While you were out. <laughs> and what most people don't realize is that he then went on to serve in the Continental Army. And Robert Morris went on to be the uh, person who raised the, he was the financier of the American Revolution. So they both served with the distinction. So they got with the program. They absolutely got with the program. The part of the history of, of the American Revolution that I didn't realize until I mm -hmm. went through the museum is that, you know, we talk about July 4th, 1776, but it was the three days before that that things got crazy. I mean, talk about the fleet, the British fleet showing up in New York. It was, I think Americans don't fully realize what it's like to have war on our shores. Uh, the only other time that happened would be really during the Civil War, arguably the War of 1812. Well, we, we don't understand what it's like to be either threatened by attack or Correct. attacked themselves. And the most recent example of that, of course, was 9-11. That's right. And the sense of an invasion of the homeland is something that became very real during this period, 1775-1776. And so, yeah, this was an embattled country as far as security. And we all, always think of the guys putting on uniforms and going out to defend our independence. But women were left at home on farms. They had to take care of kids. You have Betsy Ross making cartridges for the Continental Army. By the way, speaking of Betsy Ross, let's talk about your history. Yes. <laughs> when you were a kid, what did you do? I was a total dork. I, when I was in kindergarten, I was so entranced with Betsy Ross that I felt compelled to create a play about Betsy Ross that include George Washington and coming to visit Betsy and guess who got to be the star of the show? Would I be looking at her? Absolutely. Thank you. It was my first and last star run. And so how did that therapy work out for you? <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to have planted a seed, which is still very much alive and well as I have spent all of my career working in Philadelphia trying to make history interesting and compelling for people. I mean, when I was walking around the museum earlier, they had a depiction of the British fleet in New York. They, I mean, if you look at those numbers and you look at the size of those ships and the number of those ships, the number of people in those ships, there were more people in the, in the New York Harbor mm -hmm. than lived in New York. And those Correct. are the Brits. Correct. That's a threat. It's, it's terrifying if you think about 
the largest navy in the world coming essentially to crush you. Uh, what probably should be added to the equation is that after the Americans declared their independence in July of 1776, there were battles and you know, Washington tried to win something at Trenton and Princeton and he succeeded. But overall, the Americans were not winning battles. And the British Army took Philadelphia in late September of 1777. This was an occupied city in a way, again, that most Americans don't think of Philadelphia as having been occupied by the enemy. And yet, and yet, there was a small group of Americans who were in a fort just down the Delaware River, we're right on the Delaware River as we sit here at the Museum of the American Revolution, who held off the British Navy for about four weeks. And that and gave everybody enough time. It, it essentially created a, a degree of need of the British Army. They needed food, and they had to keep attacking this fort. So it was a way of demonstrating American resilience that we were going to be in this no matter what it took, and that took defeating the largest navy in the world and a very strong army. Finally, the Americans had to abandon Fort Mifflin, but before they did it, they hoisted the American flag over Fort Mifflin as in, take that, you silly Brits, and, and then they left. <laughs> what language? They probably use stronger language Yeah, okay, than I was that. just double-checking, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but when people think of the Revolution, and, and here we are in the Museum of the Revolution, mm -hmm. uh, which just opened up in, in April, most people don't, don't equate it with, with Philadelphia. They, they're thinking Boston, right? That's right, yeah. And I think that... I mean, first of all, the, the fact that this was an occupied city, this was a city under siege, but really this is where the country gets born as far as pulling people from all the colonies into one place. That, was, that in itself was revolutionary because at that time individual colonies thought of themselves as little individual kingdoms, little states, states' rights, a, a phrase that is still with us today. And the fact that they came together to meet to discuss a mutual destiny is something that was really quite radical and revolutionary. So that was that is, in a way, Philadelphia's contribution to the, the American Revolution is how to think of this place as a nation. And that's where it started. It is where it started. And arguably, it is where some key components of this nation got founded then later in the 1790s, when this became the national capital, this is where President George Washington was, President John Adams, and somebody who's become incredibly well-known these days, Alexander Hamilton. Who? Who? <laughs> who's, oh, America's first rapper. That's correct. Okay, I just want to make sure right. we got it right. Right. Yeah. Philadelphia doesn't get enough attention for its place as the home of American rap. That's right. <laughs> But, but the bottom line is, it's all here. It's all here. And and the Museum of the American Revolution, we're sitting across the street from Alexander Hamilton's First Bank of the United States. We're on the street, Third Street, where Alexander Hamilton lived. Much of what happened in that musical is placed in New York. Much of what happened actually happened in Philadelphia. Hello? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
Most people think of the American Revolution, oh, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be in Boston. Yeah, well, Boston was involved, you bet. But so much of it happened right here. And it culminated, of course, with the Declaration of Independence right here, spitting distance from where we're sitting right now. And joining me, someone who knows a little bit about this, she's the author of 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia Before You Die. What an original title for a book. My goodness. Irene Levy-Baker, how are you? Nice to be here, Peter. Yeah, so, you know, we talk about the things that are in the brochures and the guidebooks, and I don't like to talk about those things because anybody can do that and stand in line. And you can have a good experience. I'm not putting it down, but there are so many other things that you can do here that you don't know about, which are in your book. Um, And how long have you lived in Philadelphia? Well, people are surprised to hear that I'm not a native Philadelphian. I'm a Philadelphian by choice, not by birth. Okay, but you've been here, what, 25 years? 25 years I've been here. So to me, I mean, there's so many different neighborhoods, right? Um, When I first came to Philadelphia, you know, it was a square, and and that was, I I didn't really know, right? And now I've had had a chance over these many years to get out and get around. Uh, But what are the surprises that that are in your book that that are not necessarily in the brochure, not necessarily in the guidebooks that, that people have access to, that they can do, that are quintessentially Philadelphian? Um, well, my, my book includes not only the tried and true attractions, but also the hidden gems That's that what you're we're after. About. Exactly. And it includes where to get the best ice cream, where to get the best desserts, how to get discounts. At well, places. you're starting with my favorite topic. So let's tell where, where do you get the best ice cream in Philadelphia? Um, I recommend a couple of places. One is Franklin Fountain, which is like an old fashioned soda counter. Don't tell me they make egg creams. They, the, my favorite thing there is the PB and J milkshake. Really? Oh, it's... Ugh. <laughs> um, I also really like Capogiro gelato, which can be found in uh, several different places throughout the city. Um, and it's made fresh in small batches daily. Okay, so that's the ice cream. Now, for pretzels, I mean, everybody, is, everybody does soft pretzels. There but... Is, so for soft pretzels, we go to one of your and my favorite places, Reading Terminal Market, the 120-year-old yeah, farmer's let, market. Let's talk about that, because... This is a place, whenever I come to Philadelphia, I have to go there. Um, and I know I'm in trouble. You know, you, you know, you gotta go there and you know you're gonna get in trouble because it's everything you want. I mean, it's, it's yes, there's uh, the Amish are there, but the, so are the guys making, the, the breweries are there and, and the seafood guys are there and, and the cheese places are there. And the, the farmers are coming in from outside the city. I mean, what's your favorite place? Do you have a favorite place in the Reading Terminal Market? Well, the great thing about Reading Terminal Market is that you can get any kind of ethnic food, Middle Eastern, Greek, you know, soul food, Jewish deli, but you can also get Philadelphia delicacies. So you can get like a a Philadelphia cheesesteak, of course, course. like your pretzels. You can get them um, freshly made by the Amish there, or you can get them the way Philadelphians get them in long strips. Um... You can get snapper soup there. Okay, snapper soup. Turtle soup. Okay, made from turtles. Really? Wow. How 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 environmentally responsible? (laughs) (laughs) Keep going. Um, So that's the place where you can get either a taste of Philadelphia, right, or a taste of different and a taste of different ethnic foods. And, and it's it, bustling and, and fun and, it goes and colorful. On, and it goes on. It's this big. And here's the other important thing about it. There are no chains there. There are places like Bassett's Ice Cream that has, have been there for over 100 years. It's run by the um, great, great, great grandson of the original owner. 
And that's cool. I mean, no chains. So you're not going there to TGIFs, and you're not going there for uh, for Burger King. You're actually going for local stuff. Authentic local food. Yeah, and bring an extra shopping bag because you're you're going to get in trouble. Every, Definitely. I mean, every time I go there, I, mean, I, I don't live in Philadelphia. I'm staying usually at a hotel, and I just load up, and then I go back to my hotel. And I'm like, I can't believe I bought all this stuff. Some people call that trouble. Some people call that great. No, some people call that you're going to be eating a lot. <laughs> I call that great. <laughs> yes. And that's the whole Peter, theme Peter in Philadelphia. Leaving, yeah, Peter won't be leaving his room tonight. He's in for the evening. Yeah. That's the whole theme in Philadelphia because we have such great restaurants in Philadelphia. All right, let's talk about that because, because you didn't used to. That's true. I mean, our restaurant scene has gotten better and better, and it's finally being recognized. Um, we just won three James Beard Awards, which are the Oscars of the food world. So we feel like Philadelphia is finally being recognized for the great food we know it has. We're far more than cheesesteaks. All right, so let's talk about far more than cheesesteaks. Like what? Like we have a lot of chef-driven restaurants, mom-and-pop restaurants, where Pop's in the kitchen cooking and, and you know his wife might be doing the front of the house. Because we are a city that has a lot of BYOBs, uh, bring-your-own-bottle restaurants, people can open on a shoestring and really provide really great food, and the customers get a real deal because they bring their own beer, wine, liquor. And it's, and it's easy. It's easy. It's easy and it's good. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. talking with Irene Levy-Baker, the author of 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia Before You Die, and we were just getting to Franklin Square. Franklin Square is one of the original squares designed by William Penn, founder of Philadelphia. By the way, I have to ask you a question about William Penn for a second. When it rains, that building where his statue's on the top, does he really urinate? (laughs) Um, Well, don't we all? But only when it rains with him. I mean, people actually, I was staying at the, at, at the Ritz-Carlton, which is right next door, and the doorman said, come outside. It was pouring rain when he said, look up. I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> you know, you can take a little elevator to the top of City Hall. Yeah. And it's a great view looking around the city. It doesn't take you to the top of William Penn's hat. No. It takes you to his feet, and it's a very interesting uh, way to see the city. All right, now let's go back. I had to digress, but now let's go back to okay, Franklin Okay, so Square. let's talk about Franklin Square. Yeah. There is a, an old-fashioned carousel. There is a food kiosk. And there is also a miniature golf where you have miniature Philadelphia icons, like the Liberty Bell, Independence Hall, the Art Museum steps, which are known as the Rocky Steps, and a mini love sculpture. Okay, I got to digress again. How many idiots every day run up those steps. <laughs> it's fun to run up those steps. Rocky is, has a lot of Philadelphia personality. See, I did it once, but when I got to the top, I thought this was an original idea. I yelled out, Adrian! And it, it didn't work. It didn't work. And it's also, when you turn around and yell out, Adrian, it's a beautiful view of the city. It is. That's down the, Ben Franklin well, Parkway to you City saw Hall. That, you saw that and beautiful view. And your friend, view, William Penn. But you saw that beautiful view when the camera turned around when he did run to the top yes. of the steps. So back to Franklin Square. Oh, oh excuse me. So I'm, here's I'm what, digressing all over the place. So here's what I suggest people do. And this works for young kids, tweens, teenagers. Take your kids to play miniature golf. Have them take their picture next to the Philadelphia mini icons 
and then wait and see how excited they get to go with you to the real things. But you see, I just get excited playing miniature golf. It's the only golf I play. Right. So it's two things to, that are fun. Yeah. And then they get great pictures for their social media next to the mini Chinese friendship gate and then next to the real Chinese friendship gate. You get several days together with your exactly. children or grandchildren. Now, the Philadelphia Magic Gardens. Yeah. Philadelphia Magic Gardens is something that's unique to Philadelphia. Artist Isaiah Zagar created a half-block artistic installation. He used mosaic tiles and mirrors and sculptures, and he mosaiced the floors and the walls and the ceilings, and you walk through it, and you're just transformed. You'll see his, mural, his mosaic murals elsewhere throughout the city, but the Magic Gardens on South Street is a very special place. Has Philadelphia changed to the point, we know it's historic, there's no doubt about that, but I was having a discussion with some friends the other day, and, and, and nobody outside of Philadelphia gets the idea that, that Philadelphia is sexy, that it's romantic, that it's fun. They just think it's an old city. And yet, you guys are exploding in the food scene. You're exploding in the entertainment scene. You're exploding in the art scene, right? You're exploding in the food truck scene. We're exploding everywhere. We've been host to the Democratic National Convention. We've been host to the Pope. We've been post, host to the NFL Draft. I mean, things are happening in Philadelphia. And, and the Pope enjoyed a stay, driving around the little mini Pope-mobile, <laughs> right? That little... I mean, the reason we're attracting national and international attention is because of our great hospitality product. And it's not, it is a lot of history, but it's also, you're right, dining and museums and culture okay, and let's great look, public space. Other than the museum we're in right now, which is an amazing place and it's brand new, but they've done it so well, what would be your favorite off-the-wall museum here? I'm crazy about the Mütter Museum, which is medical oddities. I'd like to say... Ooh, they, <laughs> you know what? They used to have a museum of medical quackery in St. Louis, so this is right up that alley. Um, definitely. That might be even scarier. Yeah. So, so what's like in the medical say, oddities? This one I want to hear about. I like to say that the Mütter Museum separates the um, science lovers from the squeamish. <laughs> You'll find a collection of 2,000 swallowed objects that it will definitely, it will make you cringe. Um, there is a plaster cast of uh, co-joined twins, Chang and Ang, whose autopsy was performed there. There is a skeleton of a dwarf, an average sized person and a giant that greet you when you come in. In their own special way. And but they have a sense of humor. In the gift shop, you'll actually find a cookie cutter of Chang and Ang. <laughs> The Museum of Medical Oddities. And, and, and who's the curator? I want to know who the curator is for that place. He's got to be or she's got to be weird. Well, I love that they have a sense of humor because that makes it quite palatable. All right. So that's the quirkiest, craziest museum. What's the one that people will be the most surprised about? People are surprised when I talk about the shoe museum um, where they have all kinds of shoes, everything from clown shoes to Chinese shoes worn by uh, the Chinese with bound feet. They have celebrities' shoes like Dr. J and First Ladies. Do they have Imelda Marcos's shoes? That's what I want to know. Well, you know, she has all... She had her own museum. <laughs> she had her own museum. <laughs> exactly. But interestingly, it's in the School of Podiatry. I'm shocked. Of course. Of course. And they use that to measure feet, of course. Amazing. Okay, so we've got the Museum of Medical Oddities, which I've got to go check out. Museum of Shoes for people who just can't get enough shoes. Um, now, you mentioned, you know, the, the cutting-edge restaurants that we have here in town, but... I'm looking for the dives. 
Okay, so let me tell you about a place where you can get a little liquid history. Yeah. Since Philadelphia is such a historic city. McGillan's Old Ale House is the oldest continuously operating tavern in Philadelphia. It opened in 1860. To give you perspective, that's the year Abe Lincoln was elected president. It was run by Ma and Pa McGillan. They raised their 13 children upstairs. Um, when Pa died, Ma ran it by herself through prohibition. When she, and she was a tough bird. There were people she wouldn't allow in. Hey, wait a minute. She ran it through prohibition. She had to be a tough bird. Yeah, she was tough. Um, she served tea, and I say that with, a, with quotation marks, yes. um, upstairs during prohibition. She had people she wouldn't allow in, including her own father, because he was too rowdy. When she died in her 90s, her daughter Mercedes, who grew up upstairs, sold it to uh, two brothers, the Spaniac brothers. Their grand, their, they sold it to their daughter and son-in-law, who now runs it with their grandson. So in 157 years, it's been in two families. And when you go there, you can see the history on the walls. There are 157 years worth of liquor licenses, there are historic pictures of Philadelphia and the celebrities that used to come there and still come there. There are signs from old Philadelphia institutions, names that you probably recognize, like Wanamaker, Strawbridge, even Lebesgue Finn's sign is there. Um, so, and you can go there, you can have big, hearty comfort food, including, here's a tip, free soup at lunch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So that's a place you can have a little liquid history in Philadelphia. How do you handle a hungry man? Okay, that's I got it. So free soup at lunch over there. That's pretty cool. Dinner? Uh, yes, they serve dinner. No, but where else do you go oh, for dinner? So where would we go for dinner? Yeah. Um, there's a place that um, I'm very fond of called Victor Cafe. It's in South Philadelphia. They serve, uh, you know, your basic Italian... Uh, red gravy type, which is what we call red sauce type food. That's a Philadelphianism. And every server is an opera singer. So every 20 minutes, one of the servers will break into an aria. My father called it the best meal of his life. Wow. Maybe that's to cover the fact that the food was not that good? The no? food is good, no. the food is hearty, and the experience is unforgettable. Wow. Opera dinner. They had. They used to have those singing waiters in New York at a place called Luchow's. Then they didn't. They stopped. Right. So somebody's nodding. Somebody remembers that. Okay. Good. All right. So there's there's a place you go for dinner. We forgot breakfast. Uh, well, we're, uh, let's have breakfast at Metropolitan Bakery. Ah, uh, now we get the bakeries coming in. Okay. Metropolitan Bakery is a has been around for about 25 years. It was started by. Uh, two people who want to do good in the community. They give back a lot to the community. They, have, they help the homeless. They help their communities. And they sell some of the best bread and granola um, and other morning foods in the city. So you go there for breakfast, you do good. And then if you're not feeling well, you go to the Museum of Medical Oddities. <laughs> well, if you're not feeling well, they're like a library to keep you. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. I welcome aboard the fire commissioner of the city of Philadelphia, Adam Teal. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that here we are in the Museum of the American Revolution, and when you look at the history of fire departments, that's Benjamin Franklin. And that's Peter Stuyvesant. I mean, we're going back to the Revolutionary War. No, that's right. 1736, actually, uh, Ben's tomb is 
right around the corner from here, and it's actually right across the street from one of our firehouses, actually, right now. Uh, we have Snorkel 2 there. used to be Engine 8 Snorkel 2, and uh, so that, that we're li really living that legacy every day. And, of course, when you think about the original fire brigades, you know, the bucket brigades, really, right? I mean, that's all they had to work with. That, and then they had the pumpers with the horses. I mean, it, it's amazing how far we've come in terms of mobility, in terms of, of technology. Yeah, it really is. I mean, they were leather fire buckets and bucket brigades, hand-operated hand pumpers. So actually you with had- With bellows, with bellows. Yeah, on either side, everybody making the pumps work. So now, of course, uh, instead of those relatively small volume pumps, we have 1,500 gallon per minute pumps. You know, great technology, but we're still operating here in a very unique built environment. It's a great historical environment. Narrow streets, wonderful old buildings, but a of lot course, of a lot of wood frame. A lot of wood frame, and we really have everything here. You know, we have 25 new high rises under construction in Center City. We have colonial era buildings and everything in between. So it's a, really a challenging work environment. But our firefighters are just are just awesome, and, and our medics too, dealing with all the EMS calls that we have. Well, we'll get to that in a second because the the first thing that that people need to know is that you know we finally got up to speed on fire codes. Yes, it's uh, it's still a challenge. You know, with the enforcement of the codes and continuing to do inspections. But yeah, we're it's much better than it was and continuing to evolve. You know, we keep pushing the codes forward and, and building in those safety margins that we need for folks. We still need everybody's help, though, with the basics, smoke alarms, fire prevention, all those things. And the smoke alarms, I mean, it, it sounds silly, but replace the batteries, guys. It doesn't help you. No, that's right. And you can get now you can get a smoke alarm where you only have to replace the smoke alarm every 10 years. So the sealed lithium ion batteries are really great for us. And uh, we're trying to get those in. We're doing a lot of work with a lot of our partners, Red Cross and others, to uh, make sure that every home in Philadelphia has a smoke, at least one, if not more smoke alarms. I'm thinking that, you know, there's got to be another way. I mean, when you think about certain voter rights rules where, you know, you can't get your driver's license renewed unless you unless you vote. And, you know, there's got to be a way that, you know, you can't, you know, get your property taxes completely paid unless you have the fire, you know, the smoke detector. I mean, something where people know they're really going to have it. Yeah, you know, we do a lot of work with, with fire prevention. We have a great group of folks that go out to schools and neighborhoods, and we're out in the communities all the time. Uh, we'll be doing that again on Friday. We're actually going to be handing out smoke alarms in a couple neighborhoods. So, You know, not to get too inside baseball, but, but you know, a city fire department like yours, you fight fires offensively. Our fire department, we don't have that choice. We have to fire, fight them defensively. We have to surround and drown and save everything around it because we, we, chances are we can't save the actual primary location. Right. You guys, get, you, you guys really get in there. Yeah, you know, I've been all over the country, all over the world in fire departments, visiting fire departments, working in a few fire departments. You know, our firefighters here in Philly are just awesome. Uh, they're very aggressive, aggressive interior attack. The challenge for us, of course, is that that takes away some, from some of our safety margins. So... They're awesome, which is a wonderful thing. And but they're on they really the margins. Do. They're on the margins. On the margins. And it's, you know, it's a dangerous job everywhere here with our unique built environment and the way we fight fire. It's particularly dangerous. Now, you're going to laugh at me, but I'm not an interior firefighter because I got beard and glasses. I can't get a good fit on the mask. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice that at all. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> I'm an exterior guy. But what people don't realize about fighting a fire and holding that hose, you talk about the pressure on those pumps. People do not realize until you actually show them that I can basically get out there at a fire and hold that hose for maybe 10 minutes. Maybe 10 minutes, I got two guys behind me straddling right. that hose, and they, then I have to be spelled. And when I have to be spelled, I have to sit down because you, re you don't realize how much strength you have to use just to maintain that hose. Yeah, it's really physically punishing, and it's one of the frequently asked questions I remind folks. You know, it's not one fire engine to put out a fire. It's four fire engines, two ladder trucks, and it really takes that 24 to 30 folks to be able to mount an aggressive interior attack save lives and protect property. And again, we do that here better than anywhere I've ever seen. And your response time? Our, our response times, of course, are very good because we are, you know, it's a, it's a dense urban city. 
the challenges for us, traffic and, of course, call volume. So sometimes it's, it's not exactly where we'd want it to be, but generally we get a, a good response there very quickly. And, again, we put it in the hands of our very capable firefighters and medics, and they, they really do an incredible and job. And you roll the EMTs on every fire. We do. We didn't used to do that. We do that now because we really are. You know, our folks are making a lot of rescues, so it's, uh, we want to make sure they can hand off whoever they rescue right into the back of a medic unit, provide that great patient care, and get to one of our hospitals. Adam Till, the Fire Commissioner of Philadelphia, stay with us because when we come back, then we're going to get down and dirty on your secrets of where you want to go and hang out <laughs> and eat, which is really the important stuff when everything is said and done. Back with more of Peter Greenberg Worldwide from the Museum of American History right here in Philadelphia with... You know what? I won't even mention cheesesteaks, okay? Is that okay? <laughs> we have a lot of great I food knew be it. way beyond cheesesteaks. Good. Hold on to that thought. Back right after it. Now back to Peter Greenberg. 43 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from the Museum of the American Revolution right here in Philadelphia. We're talking to Adam Teal, the fire commissioner of the city of Philadelphia. Before you were here, you were actually the fire chief in Alexandria, Virginia. I was. I was for uh, almost seven years. Yeah. Different challenges. Well, it's actually pretty similar. Just, of course, Philadelphia is bigger, but the built environment, very similar. You know, colonial buildings, everything up to modern high rises, very dense, very urban, uh, and some great culture and great history. You know, I was a history major. Uh, in my first bachelor's degree. So it's great to actually be living in these places that are the, the cradles of liberty. Well, actually, when you're reporting to a scene, you're reporting to history. No, that's right. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's amazing here. We never know what kind of building we're going to be in. And, you know, George Washington slept there and here. So uh, I'm sort of following <laughs> George around. Well, speaking of that, now let's talk to the, the really important stuff because you guys got to eat. I always want to know where you want to go. So let's start with breakfast. In Philadelphia, where do you hang? Well, you know, to be honest, I eat at a lot of firehouses. Oh, so. <laughs> I know that. I mean, yeah. I've done uh, 70 some odd firehouse meals. We have some great cooks. You know, I actually live in a, in a neighborhood called uh, Maniunk, and uh, there's a, a great little place right across from the fire station there called Greg's. And so that's uh, a frequent breakfast spot for me. But and what are you ordering there? They have this, uh, they call it brekkie in a cup, and it's basically... <laughs> brekkie in a yeah, cup? Yeah, it's eggs, and I mean, it's everything you need in a in a cup and it's so it's good for me because i'm always running around grab and go it's place. a grab yeah. and go place yeah all right lunch uh you know lunch is tough it's um i don't i actually don't eat a lot of lunch i don't have time uh, usually so i know so, it's okay so wait meal. so you're saving it up for dinner i'm saving it up for dinner and, and dinner you know i really do eat a lot of firehouse meals but we have so many great restaurants and you know you mentioned it there's so much more here than cheese but, but wait let's go back to firehouse meals for a second because when i've done my ride-alongs at different departments around the country it's one thing to say, oh, we're eating at the firehouse. Well, you know, you're right in the middle of cooking and the alarm goes off. You're not eating. Yeah, that's well, right. And we have actually our medics are so busy. They basically take their meals and put it right in a styrofoam container. You know, they're doing hundreds of thousands of runs a year, so they don't really have time to eat at the table. They just put it right in. However good the meal is, they put it right in a styrofoam container and wow. take it with them and, you know, eat it when they can. So grab bites in between runs to the hospital. But you just gave me a staggering statistic. Hundreds of thousands of runs a year. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we're approaching 400,000 runs a year, and then, you know, it's just, it continues to increase. How many different houses? We have 63 firehouses. Two of those are our marine units, and uh, we have 50 paramedic units deployed all across the city. And, I mean, they literally are constantly, it's EMS week this week, so I'm going around. The place that I catch them is actually at hospitals, because that's, they're rarely ever in the firehouse. Because they're transporting. Yeah, they're transporting. They're either going to a run, taking somebody to the hospital, or, you know, getting ready for the next one. Do you guys do an active ride-along program? 
We do have a ride-along program. Yeah. So somebody so. visiting Philadelphia can come hang with you? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit more constrained than that. I but, understand. Uh, we actually have some, some Air Force para-jumpers who come here and ride all the time to, uh, as part of their training. So that's a great partnership that we have. And, you know, we're happy to support that kind of global mission uh, of the U.S. and their service right here in Philadelphia. But here's what I want to tell people. If you want to show up and learn about Philadelphia, just pick any one of those 63 firehouses, knock on the door, bring dessert. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Come on, right? Bring yeah, dessert. Uh, you know, our folks really are incredibly hospitable, yeah. and uh, they're used to visitors. You know, they all sell T-shirts, uh, so they're used to it, and, and they really like having that. They don't like recognition for what they do, but they're always they're, they like they're great hosts. They like dessert. No, they like dessert. Fire, firefighters and medics all like dessert. And actually, <laughs> they uh, it became as I was going around to firehouses, I would have multiple desserts, and I had to try a little <laughs> bit of each one. So that's really why I had to slow down. I mean, we just have some incredible bakeries all around the city and everything. What's your favorite bakery? Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, again, I don't know if I can pick one. There, uh, there are a lot of them in, in South Philly and, um, you know, you really just, you just can't go wrong here with the food. And we talked about the cheesesteaks, you know, Pat's or Gino's is what people, people well, typically Pat's hear. Is the, Pat's is the iconic, yeah. Every neighborhood kind of has their own cheesesteak place. And I do like, I mean, cheesesteaks are really great. It's just, we have so many other places. We have several James Beard award-winning restaurants, you know, Zahav, which is one, uh, Israeli food, Middle Eastern food. That's just sure. awesome. I mean, there's just... Everything is here, you know. I mean, that's as somebody who's relatively new. I'd visited Philly a few times, but until living here, I just didn't realize how much the city has to offer. So, how many special inspection trips does the fire department do to, let's say, the Reading Market? Well, yeah, Reading Terminal Market is on the on the not miss list. You can get <laughs> everything at Reading Terminal Market, any kind of food that you could ever want, uh, a lot of other crafts and things like that. It's just a it's a really neat place to go, and definitely on everybody's list. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I guess the first question that comes to mind when you see that there's a museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia is it goes against the stereotype of what you're thinking. You're thinking, why isn't it in Boston? And yet Philadelphia had so much to play in the American Revolution, and, and joining me now is the CEO of the Museum of the American Revolution, Michael Quinn. How are you, sir? Peter, I'm fine. So you heard my introduction. I have to ask the question, why Philadelphia? Well, Philadelphia got its act together um, <laughs> and made it happen, and this really is... So, the, you, so, this, so, so Boston's getting jealous. <laughs> this is actually the headquarters of the American Revolution. I mean, think about it. When the delegates gathered as the British oppression grew, where did they go to? They came to Philadelphia. Where was the declaration written? Here. Uh, how, how many feet from here? Oh, about two blocks. Yeah. Uh, a couple hundred feet. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, the British forces seized Philadelphia in what they thought would be a knockout blow. They, they actually they got... They occupied. They occupied the city. And then they realized but Washington made it impossible for them to hold it. And when they pulled out of Philadelphia, it was a turning point in the revolution. 
Philadelphia is also a world heritage city. It's the only one in North America. Um, and that's because of its, its heritage from uh, the American Revolution. We're the only UNESCO World Heritage Site in North America? Uh, uh, As a city? No, 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 not in North America. We're the only World Heritage City. Yeah. Independence Hall is our World Heritage Landmark. And that's really the, the city designation. And I should it. tell everybody, and it's sort of a sad thing to say, but uh, the, the uh, Independence Hall is an exception to the rule of most World Heritage Sites because even though you're named as a World Heritage Site, not every country displays it well, not every country preserves it well, uh, not every country even lets you know it's there. But uh, here you have preserved it very well. We have. And in fact, it's not just Independence Hall. The reason the city got that designation is that the 18th century is still here. You can walk down so many streets, turn down a little alley, and suddenly you're among townhouses on a, on a cobblestone street, that was, which is just what it was in the 18th century. Now, before you came here about five years ago, you were actually doing the work of restoring James Madison's home. I was. I was director there for 12 years, and my goal was to restore not just the home, but to restore James Madison to the American people. And did you do it? I think we took a big step forward on that. More work needs to be done. We, in both places, my goal has been public education. Americans need to know about the founding era and because it's the ideas, the institutions that came out of the founding that really are the core of our democracy. You know, I talked about this in the beginning of the show with, with, with Sandy Lloyd, and, and it's just remarkable when I walk through one of your exhibits here to realize that the British fleet showed up in New York I mean, they just didn't send a couple of ships. They sent the British fleet. Oh, they sent they sent an armada. I mean, and I mean, there are more ships and more people than were actually living in New York. Oh, absolutely. I mean, New York was a small town at that time, and by the time that armada finished landing, it was forty-two thousand soldiers and sailors, supported by a hundred warships. It was a fighting force equal to two percent of the colonial population. You think about that in terms of today. But, but that, that, sent, that sent a terrifying message to the, to, to, to the revolutionaries. It sent a terrifying message. One of the delegates at, the, in, at Continental Congress, after they signed the independence, uh, it was Ben Franklin who said, if we don't hang together, we will surely hang separately. And that was not said in jest. Because they could just look out their window and see, uh-oh, yeah. the British really were coming. In yeah, fact, they were. they were here. And one of the great ironies of history, as they are finishing the voting on the Declaration of Independence, the first wave of that armada is landing in New York. <laughs> Talk about timing. <laughs> I mean, if, if it, that debate had been scheduled a month later, they may not have been so bold. They never may have finished the debate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. We've been talking food on and off throughout the show for good reason. The, the food scene has exploded over the years, and my next guest has seen it all because he's been at the Philadelphia Inquirer for like the last 19 years, I think. Uh, Craig Levan, right? Yes, that's right. Thanks for having me. Yes, you're the restaurant critic and, and food and drink columnist. I love that. How do you become a drink columnist? You just... Uh, at the Philadelphia Inquirer, I might add. Yes. You drink on deadline is basically what, what happens. <laughs> you don't write on deadline. You just drink on deadline. Well, drink and then write on deadline. Sure. Oh, wow. That, does it help the writing? You know, you gotta you gotta taste it to describe it. So it it is uh, it's kind of. Remember essential. this, folks. He's working. He's working. 
we just we just had a big beer festival, uh, a beer competition in town called the Brewvitational. We had over forty one breweries, and we had I had judges. of those forty one breweries. How many from Philadelphia? All. You're kidding. In the Philadelphia region, and we had seventy nine beers on the table with twelve judges and four hours to sip and rate them all. And were paramedics standing by? <laughs> we were we were highly trained professionals. A lot of sipping and spitting going on. I bet. But uh, we had fun, and uh, you know, you learn you learn to uh, to do this job uh, thoughtfully and professionally. Well, let's give it some perspective. When you got here in 1998, there were not 41 breweries in Philadelphia. Oh my gosh, no. We, you know, Philadelphia's beer revolution has been a major part of of the, of the dining scene here. We have an old tradition uh, in German German roots of brewing here, lager was uh, first brewed in America right here in Northern Liberties. So it was in our DNA, but you know, when the craft beer revolution started about 20 years ago, there were about four or five local breweries. Uh, some of them, many of them were actually out in the suburbs like Victory and Stouts and Sly Fox. We had yards here as well. And uh, you know, it has grown tremendously over the last two decades. And now, I'm, and how many, how many of those beers are on tap in this town? They're all on tap. Uh, I, countless. Unreal. I, it, it, you can't keep up with them. And that was just, you know, 80 new beers. <laughs> it's incredible. But the food scene as well. The food scene has really exploded over the past two decades. Uh, Philadelphia has always sort of thought of itself a little bit in the shadows of uh, New York and D.C., and it has really kind of come into its own over the last two decades. I mean, yes, there are the cheesesteaks, yes, there are the pretzels, and I love them, and there's no reason not to, right? Absolutely. But? Well, Philadelphia is, is an incredibly diverse uh, dining scene with very sophisticated uh, things and options for people to, to, to go for, and we have this sort of level of uh, accessible sophistication that a lot of other cities on the East Coast don't have. We have all the assets of a great big city, uh, the talent, and the dining crowd to appreciate it. But there's sort of an affordability and a human scale to the restaurants here that I think you don't find in New York City or D.C. Would I be safe to say you also don't find the attitude? Oh, we have attitude. <laughs> it's more of a pride, and it's more of a real person, you know, welcome to our, welcome to our restaurant you know, attitude because, you know, Philadelphia is not a dining scene driven by expense accounts. These are real people here who pay in their own money, and so we have a great neighborhood dining scene. And that's the difference. Absolutely, because the people running those restaurants know their customers. There's a very personal scale of interaction. We have a lot of smaller restaurants in Philadelphia, and I think that's a function of the sort of historic landscape yeah. it grew up in. I, w I would presume then you have a, a less of a turnover. You know, it seems like more restaurants open up every year than you can imagine, and there are, inevitably there are some closings, but... It's nowhere at the pace that you, you, know, you hear, oh, 50% of restaurants close after three years. That's, that is not the case in Philadelphia if you're, doing, if you're doing what you should be doing. And what should you be doing? Well, I mean, you know, serving great food with real hospitality and, you know, putting, there's a very high standard in Philadelphia, really good cooks. And, um, okay, you just said something that was interesting. You said really good cooks as opposed to celebrity chefs. Right. Well, we have celebrity chefs. Oh, I know chefs. you do, but we're living in a world in which every chef has to be a celebrity. You know, that, that, has, that has certainly evolved over the last 20 years, you know, with, with uh, the t uh, Food Network and, you know, uh, TV shows. And it's certainly become 
you know, food has become a part of our pop culture and our mainstream culture and a sort of celebrity aspect to it in a ways that you know, it never was 20 years ago. And yet when I think of Philadelphia, I don't think of celebrity chefs. I think of good cooking. There's a difference. Well, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, you really have to be uh, paying attention every day to what's going on in your restaurant. And once again, making that connection with your customers, listening to what they want, evolving, evolving your menus to reflect, you know, what's fresh in the market and make people feel like you are operating a living, breathing restaurant, not simply a product with your name on it. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Michael Solomonov, who has got a great restaurant, that amazing, I won't say just Israeli food, I'll, I'll call it Middle Eastern food. Yeah, you know, M Michael Solomonov is certainly one of our great stars in Philadelphia and, you know, was just named most outstanding chef in the country by the James Beard Award, a well-deserved award for his restaurant, Zahav, which is an exploration of modern Israeli food. Yeah. And you can say Middle Eastern, of course, because, you know, Israel is in the Middle East, but it's such a melting pot and there's so many influences that come into Israel. Listen, on his wine list, he's got wines from Lebanon. Absolutely. He's got what? Wines from the West Bank. It's amazing. It's like, what? This is cool. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? I'm joined by a guy with a little bit of history, not just here, but overseas as well. A 2011 James Beard winner, but he's now the owner and proprietor of Zahav's Open Kitchen. I, I, I just call it Open Kitchen because that's your restaurant, man. That is. Michael Solomonov, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, dude. And... Uh, Dude, okay, I got dude out of you. Yeah. Okay, well, you know what? It's interesting. The Philadelphia food scene, we've been talking about it throughout the show, is, it's exploded. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, in every different form, in every different variety, it's not, uh, with no due disrespect to cheesesteaks and pretzels, uh, you've gone way beyond that. And especially in the bread department, the bread at your place is unbelievable. Well, I appreciate that. We take our bread very, very seriously. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, Philly is known for cheesesteaks and I guess that's basically it. But, I mean, Philly has a tremendously rich uh, culinary history. The pepper pot soup is like, you know, tripe and stupid. Well, you're peppers. from here, right? Well, actually, I'm from... Well, you were, you were born in Israel. I was born in Israel, but I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I've been... A Western PA guy. Western PA, which is a very different oh, place than Eastern it. PA. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we watched the red and the blue lines in the election. I, <laughs> well, actually, Pittsburgh was okay. You know, yeah. Pittsburgh yeah. and Philly, I think, were, were good. But um, I, uh, I've been here... For since 2001 and I do feel like a Philadelphian and um, you know I think that the culinary scene has changed so much since I've been here and it's been amazing to be a part of it and to to watch it and it's amazing to open like an Israeli restaurant in such a historic city and for those people who don't realize this if you go to Tel Aviv right now I'm just gonna use Tel Aviv as an example that's one of the hottest cutting-edge cultural food cities in, in the world right now in terms of, of, of restaurants, food, and nightlife. Yes. And you brought a lot of that stuff with you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we, what has also happened in the last 20 years or so, but maybe closer to 10 years, is that, that Israeli chefs are leaving. They're going to do their apprenticeships in Europe or going to the States. And then whatever. they're staying. And then, well, they'll actually come back to Israel, and instead of opening, like, a Spanish or an Italian restaurant, they open an Israeli restaurant because there are, like, over 100 different gastronomies that make up Israeli cuisine, right? And instead of sort of hiding the, like, whatever they had for Shabbos with their family, they sort of celebrate it 
using their modern approach. But you see, when I when I eat at your place, yeah, and and take this as a, as a, as a compliment, I look at it as a mezza. Yes. Right. It's 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 not an Israeli buffet. It's 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 just regionally a, a mezza. Yes. Right. Yep. Well, I mean, we try to, you know, we're we are trying to celebrate all the different cultures and cuisines that that make up Israeli cuisine, and and we uh, have a bit of an advantage and disadvantage because we're in Eastern Pennsylvania. Right, which is challenging because we don't have access to all the things that that you have in Israel, but it's it's allowed us and sort of liberated us, and we can look at the cuisine as a whole and say, well, I want to do Yemenite and Moroccan and this, and put it all together on one plate. Where, as I think in Israel, it's taken a little bit longer to merge all those cuisines. And the name is Zahav. Yeah, it means gold. <laughs> and uh, it's a reference to Jerusalem because, as you know, we have like 40,000 pounds of Jerusalem stone in the restaurant. Oh, yeah. That was intentional. Yeah. I mean, a huge pain, but yeah, of course. Intentional. <laughs> An intentional pain. It was intentional pain. Is there a signature dish? Uh, I think it depends on sort of who you ask. We... Uh, can I give you a hint? <clears throat> I think we ordered three orders of the bread last night. I just want to uh, let you know. So, we, so the bread that we make is uh, lafa, which is like a Iraqi-style pita. That was brought to Israel in the um, in the early fifties. So pita and our lafa and the hummus are what people probably come to the restaurant for. We have a lamb shoulder that we braise in pomegranate juice that is also probably considered to be the uh, signature dish. And you say you braise it, you marinate it too, or what we do is we uh, brine it and then we smoke it and then we braise it in pomegranate juice and then just like glaze it and kind of let it char. But you perfected that in Israel. Uh, actually, we did that here. It was sort of by accident. We had a Passover Seder at the restaurant before it was open. Um, my family decided that it would be a good idea to have Seder in Philly in this restaurant like a week before we actually opened. Yeah, just for good luck. <clears throat> it was another t- terrible idea, but um, <laughs> we had a really good time. It worked out okay, and uh, the signature dish of the restaurant was created there for Passover. Wow. Yeah. And that's, and that's your signature dish? Then. Yeah, I guess so. I'm going with the bread. Sorry. Go for it. Yeah. Whatever. That's your signature. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, you know, you know where I learned all that? Abu Lafia. Yeah, Abu Lafia, yeah. of course. Oh my God. So people good. don't know about that bakery in in Yaffa. Yeah. Oh my, out of yeah, that. from the like 1800s. Actually. Oh my. And you know, and you don't go there till 11 o'clock at night. Yep. Right. And then yep. and the bread's coming out hot, and people stand in line for hours just to get their hot bread. There's nothing. There's nothing as good as uh, like a hot. East flatbread out of the a wood burning oven, which would be found at which restaurant here in Philadelphia? Uh, Zaha. Okay, right? I just want to make sure we got that right. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. mean, the the bottom line is, I mean, it's authentic. Uh, it is authentic, and it's made um, by hand, and it's a practice. It's a style of eating bread that and people have been doing for hundreds. A of James years. Beard winner. James Beard winner. Just yeah. this year. Yeah, we won Outstanding Chef this year. Wow. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.